right, here we go. Here we go. I'm in Atlantic City. There's DJ Red Alert on stage with Lady B. They're warming up the crowd. Are you ready? This concert was like a running mixtape. No breaks, no pauses. Like when you put in a cassette and press play. As soon as the rapper song was done, another one came out on stage. It's the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. I've never seen the grandmasters of hip-hop on stage like this together. But this occasion is special. It's an anniversary. It's a celebration. Hip-hop is turning 50. When you saw the group of rappers on stage, you really gonna be crying tonight. It's non-stop. I was there to be a part of hip-hop history. I wanted to understand the old school generation, to understand the mindset of the people who started this 50 years ago. My name is Paris Smith. I'm one half of the legendary rap group EPMD. Master Ace, uh, MC, recording artist, uh, songwriter from Brooklyn, New York. I am the legendary DJ Cool. I'm from Washington, D.C., and I tear clubs up. That's what I do. Backstage after the show, all the legends are gathered. But it felt less like a concert and more like a family reunion. Now, this dude right here, this dude right here, he never changed. He was a bum then, and he's a bum now. In one corner of the room, I spot Melly Mel, someone who's been rapping before the term hip-hop was even created. He's cracking jokes with DJ Red Alert. The one and only Red Alert. That's right, baby. How you doing, Red? There's a lot of laughter and a lot of reminiscing. Everyone is wearing the exact same outfits they wore back in the 80s. I was rapping, ooh, excuse me, I was rapping like 83. I think I got in high school at 86. I started rapping in junior high, maybe 83. Wow. I see Yo-Yo. She was one of my favorite rappers growing up. What were you rapping about in junior high? Oh, my God. Um, I used to battle rap. Oh, let's go. I used to, you know, I had a boyfriend. I remember I wrote a rap like, ha-ha, yo busted. I wrote a rap. He was cheating on me. I wrote a rap when he came out of um, the class. I was like, ha-ha, yo busted. The game's on you. You tried to be a player, but the play's on you. For me, this is a surreal moment. Hip-hop changed my life. The first time I heard a rap song, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I became an MC. It's why I'm an audio engineer. And as I looked out into the crowd, I kept asking myself, do these legends know the impact they've had on the world? I grew up in Bangkok, Thailand, but my roots are in Atlanta, Georgia. Hip hop is how I connected to them. As hip hop turns 50, I thought it would be the perfect opportunity to highlight one of America's biggest cultural exports, to look back at the things that shaped hip hop itself. And I wanna share this history with the world because this has had such an impact on my life and on so many others, even if they don't realize it. For the newsroom of the Washington Post, I'm your guest host, remember? <laughs> I'm just playing. Okay. From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Sean Carter. No, not that one. It's August 11th. Today, we hear the story of hip-hop, straight from some of the most influential people in the genre and in their own words. In this episode, artists and historians help us explore how hip-hop went from a black party in the South Bronx to becoming a multi-billion dollar industry that spans the world. We'll talk about the East Coast hip-hop scene, gangster rap on the West Coast, and the rise of the Dirty South.
before the Grammys, before Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre performed at the Super Bowl, and well before there were blowout concerts in Atlantic City, hip-hop was just a couple of kids in their turntables. It's commonly accepted by most historians and people inside the industry that hip-hop was born in the South Bronx. A teenager named Cindy Campbell decided to throw a party one summer night, August 11th, 1973, and Cindy asked her brother Clive to play some music. Clive Campbell, also known as DJ Cool Herc. Like a lot of black youth back then, Herc was inspired by the pioneers of funk and soul music. Their inspiration was, in some cases, James Brown, George Clinton, and, and Parliament Funkadelic. The type of stuff Cool Herc would have been would have been playing at those parties would have been um, the soul music of, of the 70s, what we later call funk. That's Keith McMillan, an editor here at the Washington Post. And he's been doing a lot of reporting on the history of hip-hop. Cool Herc was Jamaican, so there's Jamaican influence, there's reggae influence in hip-hop. Pretty much all the type of uh, the Black music that was happening at the time. Now, Cindy's party wasn't anything special. I mean, I heard it was a dope time. But it was what Cool Herc did at that party that made it so legendary. He created something called the breakbeat. To put it simply, the breakbeat is a drum beat, often of a different song, synced, manipulated, and repeated. The DJs would have two copies of the same record, and instead of playing the whole record all the way through, they would just take the best snippet, the funkiest part, the bridge, the breakdown, the breakbeat. Um, and sometimes it would just be, you know, a very, a very short part, and then they would just weave it together so they were playing the same part over and over again, and it, and it was woven together like it was almost a new song. And people just wanted to dance to the break in the song, and that's how the term breakbeat came along. After Cool Herc played it to that crowd on that summer day in 1973, it became a mainstay at Bronx house parties, eventually spreading further throughout New York City. You know, Herc has an incredible musical style. He's playing music that you can't hear on the radio that's incredibly funky. And people come to the party for Herc's brand of music, his selection of music. Jeff Chang is a historian and author of the book, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip-Hop Generation. I talked with Jeff because I wanted to find out what hip-hop meant to New Yorkers in the 70s and how the music became so widespread. It's about going out across the Bronx and exploring with young folks and, you know, getting into dance paddles or trying to find out what these kids are about or those kids are about. It's about showing your style. When Herc threw that party, the Bronx was experiencing a new era of peace. For years, youth gangs ruled the streets, often violently. But when that violence hit a fever pitch, it encouraged gangs to make peace. And that's exactly what they did in the early 1970s. What you find is the gangs start becoming the centers of a lot of the party scene, right? People want to go and they, they want to party and want to hear music and that kind of stuff. And this sets the stage, really, for DJ Cole Herc in 1973 to throw his fabled party. So how does hip-hop go from a basement party to the parks to how did it explode to commercial music? What was that next step? What was the, what was the first commercial, I guess, hip-hop song to take it to that, to that realm? Well, that would have to be Rapper's Delight. It's a record by the Sugar Hill Gang that comes out in 1979. Dr. Gaunt, do you think you could spit a few bars of Rapper's Delight for us? Is it your favorite bars? <laughs> Y'all have to edit this. Dr. Kira Gaunt is an ethnomusicologist at the University of Albany who studies black girlhood and hip-hop. 
Now what you hear is not a test. I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the crew, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. See? I am Wonder Mike and I like to say hello. By 1980, Rapper's Delight will become the first hip-hop song to break into the top 40 on the Billboard ratings charts. And internationally, it did even better. Hip-hop was beginning to move into a new era, one featuring more commercial success and a new sound. That new sound would include what's now a mainstay of the genre, rap, something that was directly inspired by Double Dutch, a popular jump rope and hand-clapping game played by black girls. The element that we often don't remember is Double Dutch. In fact, when the first international rap tour happened in 1981, alongside DJs, MCs, and rappers, a group of girls from a Double Dutch team was invited. Cool Lady Blue and Fat Five Freddy curated this tour. And the Double Dutch girls were billed in it, and it is Dolores, Robin, Deshaun, and Nikki. So they were on the first international rap tour. And so Double Dutch was important because it has all of the elements of improvisation, freestyling, the rue of Black musical aesthetics that sound like rapping, that feel like sampling, with Down Down Baby. And of course, you can still hear the influence of those old school Double Dutch rhymes in modern songs. So Nelly's Country Grammar. Digital Underground has a song, Kiss Me and I'll Kiss You Back. It sounds like a girl's game song. Like you're sewing little pieces of the everyday culture into a sampling aesthetic or a rapping aesthetic so that you can get girls on a dance floor in a genre that is seen as predominantly male. Engine, engine, number nine. At the same time the international hip-hop tours were happening in the 80s, underground hip-hop was thriving. Back then, hip-hop communities were built around trading mixtapes and bootleg copies of popular rap tapes. If you go back to the tape era, and this, you know, for some listeners, they may be only familiar with CDs, they may only be familiar with the streaming era, but we came up in uh, cassette tapes. Here's Keith McMillan again. And so what, what would happen, we didn't have a lot of money to spend, so what would happen is someone would buy the, the paid in full, like the original one, and then I might have like, Yo Bum Rush the Show, like the first Public Enemy album or something, and then you would just trade them. Back in the day, it was cassette tapes, y'all, 1986 cassette tapes, you know, just funny little plastic piece that had two holes in it, and it turns, and you just, funny way you kind of hear the music. That's William Michael Griffin, better known as Rakim. When Keith was passing around mixtapes with his buddies, one of them came from a fresh duo, Eric B. and Rakim. In 1987, they released their album Paid in Full. It was all part of a new culture that was emerging. Hip-hop wasn't just about the music, it was a fashion statement and a new way of life. Let's welcome a terrific young rap combination. It's a selection from their paid and full album on the 4th and Broadway label. The song is titled, I Know You Got Soul, and they are Eric B. and Rakim. 
It's not an exaggeration to say that without Rakim, rap wouldn't be what it is today. Rakim's conversational tone and intricate rhyme schemes changed the way people thought about hip-hop. In fact, if you want to hear the influence today, just put on a Nas album. And then there was his fashion. Rakim's habit of sporting big gold chains, four-finger rings, would have a lasting impact on hip-hop culture. And he was serious. Rakim wasn't playing. He was there to drop knowledge. He took rhyming so seriously that he didn't have space to put in a catchy hook. Instead, his rhymes were rooted in black consciousness and themes of black empowerment that he grew up with. As you hear it, pump up the volume, dance with the speaker till you hear the blow. So of course I needed to talk to him. And that's how I found myself in the middle of a concert venue in Asbury Park, New Jersey this summer. Backstage with Eric B. and Rakim. Their publicist told me I could do the interview before the show. So I'm waiting around. Eight o'clock passes, and it's almost showtime. Still no interview. Thanks for the welcome, We're about to walk into the stage. Then the concert starts. No surprises, that pre-show interview didn't happen. Word is bond, we out here. It was only after the show that I got a chance to sit down with Rakim. First and foremost, peace, Rakim, peace, man. Peace and love, my brother. Thank you so much for doing this, bro. Oh, no doubt. Thanks for the welcome, man, G. Of course, of course. We were outside in the backyard of the house he was staying in. Inside, there was an after-party raging. Hey, easy over there. Yeah, yeah, make security. Get him out of here. Hey, yo, we got Palom over here, man. Hey, body, man. <laughs> Finally, I got the chance to ask him about his classic album, Paid in Full, and if he knew how this was going to change the world. We was just being, trying to be creative, trying to push the envelope. Um, I think we had the right mixture of cockiness and... Uh, determination and, and, and a little bit of arrogance, you know what I mean, which is real important, especially in hip hop, you know what I mean? You gotta be um, precisive on what you're doing, you gotta be sure about it, and, and, and the people gotta feel it. And what was going on in the beginning, like the elements of hip hop, I just wanna make sure people understand that. Them early stages, man, it was like the beginning of people being creative with, you know, Everything from clothes to the way you, you know, wear your hat, the way you lace your sneakers up, you know, certain kind of strings that that, that you wore. Yeah. Um, and all of these things said hip-hop, you know what I mean? We was... So I asked, when did he know the genre, this thing called hip-hop, was for real? It didn't take him long to come up with an answer. He looked up at me with the classic rock and seriousness, and in his one-of-a-kind baritone voice told me it was 1986 when he thought he was being robbed. I remember walking home one day and his brother, one of the OGs in the hood, was sitting in the car and the song was playing and I'm walking home and my man, I tell you, people used to steal my cassette tape, right? People used to steal, steal my tape. So I'm walking by the car. So I'm, I look at him like, yo, my man, yo, that's my tape. The OG looked at me, G, I was like, yeah, that's my tape. You know what I mean? He looked at me like, yo, what you talking about, man? He looked. He said, yo, this the radio, man. 
Yo, when he said that, I, yo, I, I floated all the way home from the discount store right there, Red's Discount. I don't remember getting home, how I got home from that point, but all I knew is my song was on the radio and it felt like, you know, like the whole world was listening. Rockem's influence on hip-hop is clear today. You can trace the roots of rappers like Eminem and Kendrick Lamar back to Rockem's music. But it went past the music. Rockem helped develop a culture. It was the way he dressed and the way he saw hip-hop as a means of developing black consciousness. And that would elevate the game. When I was with him in Asbury Park, he didn't look too different from the cover of his first album, Paid in Full. He had his gold chain on, a full Gucci sweatsuit, and Yankees hat that still gave him a youthful flair. But what's different now about the man standing in front of me is that if you ask anyone in hip-hop who he is, they'll tell you, that's Rakim the God. I just want to give you your flowers. I'm going to give you, give you your flowers, bro. If you weren't here, if you didn't rap, I wouldn't even be working at the Washington Post, bro. I grew up listening to your records in R&B. That made me get into sampling, made me start rhyming. So I got to give you flowers, and I appreciate you, all your contributions to the culture. Thank you, my man. Appreciate Peace, God. Bro. Thank Peace. you so much. My man. Right. Yes, sir. After the break, we trace the rise of hip-hop across the U.S. with the birth of West Coast rap. We'll be right back. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Eighty-six West Coast. It was a lot going on in eighty-six. I mean, LA was really going through a lot of turmoil. In nineteen eighty-six, Yolanda Whitaker, Yo-Yo, who we heard from earlier, was a teenager in South Central Los Angeles. It was also a year when the LA Police Department escalated the war on drugs. The gang activity was really large in Los Angeles. You had a chief of police that was um, very racist, and um, you know we had this, you know, the battle ram. You know, these were armored trucks that were going into people's houses, crashing into people's houses. So there was a lot going on, and not only the Los Angeles Police Department was in the thick of the war on drugs, more specifically, the war on crack cocaine which even President Ronald Reagan had on his radar. Today, there's a new epidemic. Smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. It is an explosively destructive and often lethal substance which is crushing its users. It is an uncontrolled fire. Well, when we get to the 1980s, what we've seen is this massive disinvestment in black and brown communities. That's a story in Jeff Chang again. You've seen a lot of social services, removed, schools are, are closing up, and folks are being laid off, and music classes and arts classes are closing. And when you add into that mix the introduction of crack cocaine, it becomes really devastating for communities that are already under a lot of pressure. The crack epidemic as it came to be known was a national crisis, but it hit places like South Central Los Angeles particularly hard. 
South Central was already burdened with the gun violence created by street gangs like the Bloods, Crips, and MS-13. Crack just make things worse. You have the, the massive expansion of the drug trade and that merging with the gang movements. But it's much more deadly because of uh, the intensity of the drug, the intensity of the trade, and now the accessibility, the easy accessibility of all this weaponry. So the music had to change. It was in these conditions that a new generation of hip-hop talent found their voices, specifically a new group called N.W.A. Led by the rapper Ice Cube, N.W.A. sang about life as they saw it, and they didn't hold any punches when it came to how they felt about the LAPD's ramped-up war on drugs. They have the authority to kill a minority. That ain't the one for a punk with a badge and a gun to be beaten on. And thrown in jail, we can go... N.W.A.'s existence was short-lived, but the release of their 1988 album Straight Outta Compton is a similar point for hip-hop, and it will put the L.A. hip-hop scene on the map. And that's when Yolanda Whitaker now rapping under the name Yo-Yo, broke onto the scene. The first time I heard you on a track, I'm going to show my age, I, I heard you um, when I was in fourth grade. It was uh, Ice Cube and yourself, It's a Man's World. And I was like, she just ate him on this track. What? Who is it? And like, my older brother was like, that's Yo-Yo. And I'm like, who's Yo-Yo? I caught up with Yo-Yo at that Atlantic City concert. The one you heard at the start of this episode. She is a beast. What? Like, she's how, what? So I, I'm always curious. How did you get your pen so sharp? You were you were murdering everybody on the track. You know, my pen sharpened when I met Ice Cube. I've always had a a, 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 a gift of writing and a gift of gab, of course. Um, but my penmanship sharpened um, once I met Ice Cube. And um, Cube kind of heightened my. Uh, he kind of grew me up in the music industry. Ice Cube and N.W.A. were crucial pioneers in the West Coast scene. And after they broke up, Ice Cube went on to become one of rap's biggest stars. But, you know, the, the, the fact that I, Cube respected the kind of woman I was and where I was coming from allowed me to respect him. Because, you know, N.W.A. was hard from Los Angeles. They was saying, you know, I ain't the one. The one to get played by a poop buck, you know, and is a, you know, all these different songs. Like the South Bronx, Los Angeles hip-hop was very influenced by the role street gangs played in day-to-day life. But while the breakbeat was born in the wake of a gang truce, West Coast hip-hop was born in the midst of gang violence. And you could hear that in the lyrics. To me, gangster rap is just the most raw, authentic picture of what life is like in a part of the country, and this is a part of America, where a lot of the rest of America would like to pretend doesn't exist. This is Keith McMillan again. He sat down with me to break down what gangster rap is, including his subgenres like G-Funk. Those people didn't see themselves reflected in images on, on television and in the news, except in the worst ways. And so they began to write songs that come at you in a way that show the breadth of humanity, right? But you also hear, you know, I'm thinking of a song, Peace Treaty, which is just about Bloods and Crips making a treaty. You you hear songs like Nothing But a G Thing, which is sort of just like, feels like a West Coast barbecue song for me. You see people in the video playing dominoes. There's There was just a lot more to it. Gangster rap and what became known 
really as G-Funk when you talk about Death Row, Dr. Dre, Warren G. That is sort of, in a lot of ways, the foundation of gangster rap and, and what people would refer to as gangster rap. But I just feel like it was, you know, just trying to take us inside life in parts of the country. Again, parts of America. This is just as much America as any other part of the heartland or the Bible Belt, right? But it's just a part that uh, we weren't getting authentic images and stories from. Gangster rap captured the public's imagination. In the 1990s, artists like Snoop Dogg, the Notorious B.I.G., and Dr. Dre sold millions of albums each. And once again, hip-hop was going through a transformative period. Hip-hop was bicoastal, and New York rappers were feeling that shift. I find it feasible, your days is over fronting evil, shouting to your people trying to bless your spot, but we don't believe that, because CBS tells a lot. Blase of Blase Blase is a veteran of the New York hip-hop scene, and the voice behind the 1995 hit song, Danger. The East is in the house, oh my God. God! <laughs> yeah, Yo, yeah. We live, we in East New York right we now. We're at the park, we're right at the park we're where we shot park. Danger. In the 90s, it was just like, it was real big. It was a big boom-bap, big underground community. Um, that boom-bap sound Blase is talking about was a mainstay of East Coast hip-hop in the 90s, usually involving heavy drums and an in-your-face mentality. It's, it's violent, um, but in a good way, violent. You know, my like my first record, which was Danger, which is a boom-bap record, but it was able to cross over because of... Um, where hip-hop was and the influence that hip-hop had. That's the era when it was, it caught them by surprise. New York had long considered itself hip-hop's cultural capital, but the artists like N.W.A. and Yo-Yo who were coming out of L.A. were challenging that. It wasn't an intentional thing, but at the time it was like the West Coast was just killing us. They was just killing New York and you was just hearing New York radio playing back-to-back West Coast records, something that was just like, you know, led to the East Coast, West Coast war, or was a big part in the East Coast, West Coast war. Um, you know, and like I said, that wasn't the intention. It's just from people manipulating the situation also. You know, magazines manipulate the situation. What was um, going on, it just played a perfect role. Despite hip-hop being an incredibly diverse genre, the rivalry between the New York-based record labels Bad Boy and LA's Death Row Records got a lot of national media attention. Check out Snoop Dogg at the 1995 Source Awards. What? Wait, wait, wait. The East Coast don't love Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg? The East Coast ain't got no love for Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and Death Row? Y'all don't love us? Y'all don't love us? We let it be known then. We know y'all East Coast. We know we at East Coast. That rivalry was embodied in a feud between two of hip-hop's biggest stars, the Notorious B.I.G. and Tupac Shakur. Here's Biggie in one of his last interviews he gave talking about Tupac. We two individual people, we waged a coastal beef. You know what I'm saying? One man against one man made a whole West Coast hate a whole East Coast and vice versa. You know what I'm saying? And that really bugged me out. Like, yo, Duke don't like me, so this whole coast don't like me. Both were seen as luminaries in the genre. But by 1997, both will be found dead from gun violence. Neither made it to see their 26th birthday. I feel like they got pitted against each other, maybe against their will. People were making it 
out to be more than maybe artists wanted it to be. Um, but it was getting at something that was really real in hip hop, which was we were just slow to accept new sounds. That's Keith again. And obviously when uh, Tupac got shot in Las Vegas in 96 and then Biggie got shot in L.A. Uh, in 97, it hit hip hop as a community in a way where people are like, it's too much. We can't be losing high level artists with so much wisdom and brilliance to give to the listeners over, a, you know, really just a demand to, that we respect each other. But that rivalry wasn't really what hip hop was all about, even in the 90s era. Yeah, there was some genuine animosity between some of the New York and the L.A. scenes, but that was just one corner of the genre. It's weird because I feel like even as it was happening, there were there were factions of hip hop that were trying to to not further it. So even then, there were groups doing these like kind of East West collaborations and um, trying to make sure that hip hop kind of had this universal feel to it. That like wherever you were, if you were hip hop, you were part of the family. And I remember Ed Lover saying this, the host of Yo MTV Raps. He said before social media, we didn't know what was going on in Oakland. We didn't know what was going on in Miami until we saw, we heard the album, we saw the video. So if you're growing up in Boston or Cleveland or Grand Rapids or Kalispell, Montana, and then you have access to MTV, you're like, whoa, I, c I can go to Atlanta with Outkast. I can go to Miami with Two Live Crew. I could go to Houston with, with Ghetto Boys. You just realize that there's more outside, more life than whatever city or town you grew up in. As gangster rap further ingrained itself into mainstream commercial culture, critics seem to be cropping up everywhere. As I see it, these are, there are three things wrong with gangster rap. One of the most prominent was C. Dolores Tucker, a civil rights activist who had once marched with Martin Luther King Jr. Tucker said gangster rap glorified violence and misogyny and demanded record labels drop artists. It is obscene. It is obscene. It is obscene. Even Congress began to scrutinize hip-hop. Senator Carol Mosley Braun held a hearing on Capitol Hill to investigate the impact of gangster rap on youth. Yo-Yo was even invited to testify. And she noted that she and many artists do think about who listens to their music. When I know there are kids in the audience, I tend to change up words to... Uh, because I know kids are out there listening to my music. My music has a sticker on it that says explicit lyrics on the cover of my music. At the turn of the millennium, the backlash to gangster rap had really heightened. There was a massive pressure campaign for labels like Time Warner to drop rappers. And it was led by conservative activists like Charlton Heston. Because of these campaigns, labels did drop rappers. When I read the lyrics to the waiting press corps outside, one of them said, we can't print that, you know. I know, I said, but Time Warner is still selling it. Two months later, Time Warner terminated Ice-T's contract. Without the influence of major labels on hip-hop, a third coast was ready to shine. As Outkast said at the 1995 Source Awards. But it's like this, though. I'm tired of folks, you know what I'm saying? The closed-minded folks, you know what I'm saying? It's like we got a demo tape and nobody want to hear it, but it's like this, the South got something to say. That's all I got to say. Yeah. While major labels in the media focus on what's happening in two cities, artists in the South began to form their own record labels. Often neglected by the major record companies, Southern rappers formed their own distribution companies and grew the industry up from scratch. The result was a DIY network of artists and producers that stretched from Houston all the way to Atlanta. 
and it allowed for a big range of sounds. Atlanta hip hop is is a collage, man. You know, you know, from the early hip hop from Outkast having something to say to T.I. going in the trap. Christopher Golson, better known as Drummer Boy, is a producer and songwriter who came up in Memphis, Tennessee. But he cut his teeth in Atlanta, Georgia, which is now considered the capital of hip hop. He's worked with some of the biggest acts in hip hop, from Young Jeezy to Gucci Mane, Lil Wayne to Drake. You know, D4L going into snap music, Lil John snap music, and then Lil John pioneering crunk music. Uh, I think Atlanta's the mecca of people who have been, you know, born here as well as people who have moved here from all over the world. So it's 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 one of the most diverse uh, cities when it comes to the South. Hip hop, Southern. I mean, it's the accent, the way we speak, the way we talk. You know, what I mean. Um, uh, sometimes the beats, the instruments, the culture, you know, you can tell a New Orleans-style beat. You can tell an Atlanta-style beat. You can tell a Memphis-style beat. You can tell Texas chopped and screwed, you know what I mean? Your crunk sound is Memphis sound. You know what I mean? Lil John says where he gets crunk from is Memphis. It wasn't long before the rest of the country started to gravitate to the diversity of the sound coming out of Southern hip-hop. In the early 2000s, there was just hit after hit after hit there was Outkast's Stankonia, which won the Grammy for Best Rap Album. There was Usher's Yeah. T.I.'s Bring Em Out. And the crunk classic, Get Low. By the end of 2004, five of the top ten songs on the Billboard's rating charts were by Southern hip-hop artists and producers. Far from when OutKast was booed for repping Atlanta at the Source Awards, today, most hip-hop now goes through the South and then out to the world. And that's where I went when I wanted to get my start in hip-hop. Modern hip-hop down South is about respect and inclusivity. Because so much of Southern hip-hop is independent and based on a hustle mentality, anyone can find their own way and make their own sound. I heard that same story from rappers to historians but I also lived it and breathed it. Unlike the New York or L.A. scenes, what makes Southern hip-hop so unique is that it's really hard to explain what the sound is. If anything, the sound is, it's diversity. But the rise of Atlanta and the South is also a testament to hip-hop's ability to adapt, evolve, and survive. I said, brother, this is the greatest hip-hop show ever. That's what that celebration in Atlantic City was all about. It was a moment to appreciate that somehow, one way or another, what started with some kids, turntables, and a creative records became something that would change our lives all over the world. Ladies and gentlemen, how many y'all are 20 and better? 30 and better? 40 and better? This is when it gets serious. What I want to know now is, where does it go next? And that's what I asked the Lady of Rage, a staple of the West Coast 90s scene, backstage while she was rocking her famous Afro Puffs. 50 year anniversary of hip hop. Um, where do you see hip hop going? Where has it not gone already? It's going, it's out of here. The stratosphere, there are no limits of, to where it can go. I mean, it's gone everywhere. So unless there is an Atlantis, 
it can go there. <laughs> you know, if there are aliens, they can go to them. But I think there is no place that hip-hop has not gone, maybe except Antarctica. When you really break it down, hip-hop's a nuanced genre, and it's hard to encapsulate. In so many ways, hip-hop is a unique reflection of the communities it comes out of. Yet songs written about life in Atlanta or Los Angeles can also transcend, and spiritually those songs can touch us no matter where we are. For me, hip-hop is one of the purest forms of expression. It can be raw and angry, slow and sad, performed with a couple drums and a turntable or alongside a symphony. But I think Raid said it best. So hip-hop can touch a culture and take over. Hip-hop can touch companies and take over. Hip-hop can touch your mind and take over. It's a, it's a way of communicating. It's a way of speaking a language that others may not be familiar with. And if you listen to this, then you might understand somebody else's culture or what they're going through. And you never would have known other than outside of listen, listening to hip-hop. So hip-hop is an avenue that can bridge things together. And I think it's all encompassing. It, it can just engulf everything and take over. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was produced and reported by me and Arjun Singh. I also mixed the show and composed some of the music. The episode was edited by Rena Flores with help from Maggie Penman and Ariel Plotnik. And thanks to Keith McMillan, Amber Ferguson, Zabby Robinson, and Emma Talkoff. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Elahe Zadi, Monica Campbell, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Winnie Svornowski, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, and Renita Jablonski. Our intern is Tanya Chavla, and today is her last day with the Post Reports team. Tanya, thank you so much for all the great work you've produced this summer. It's truly been a joy to have you on our team, and we can't wait to see what you do in the future. I'm Sean Carter. We'll be back Monday with more stories from the Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.